All right. Well, welcome everybody out. This is episode 18 of oh, Utah wow. and the Yeah, Weasley. I was going to ask you whether we were on 17 or 18. No, I'm pretty sure this is 18. I keep track. Did I tell you I keep track of my, uh, how long I've been doing this by how, what podcast we're on? Because we've done, we've missed a couple of weeks yeah. and I was a couple of weeks ahead. So we've been in this about 21, 22 weeks, right? But I keep track of it by what podcast we're on. Very cool. We have a we have a really cool guest today. Uh, I'm actually really excited to talk to this guy, uh, Weldon Angelo. How you doing? I'm pretty good. Yeah. Thank, thanks for coming and, and doing. Yeah. Thanks uh, for coming on. Utah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Is this your first Utah cannabis podcast that you've done? I know you've done a lot of cannabis podcasts, but have you done one here in Utah yet? Yeah. I was on Salt Baked City. Oh, Salt Baked City. Oh yeah. Salt yeah, Baked City. Baked City. Yeah. Yeah. Cole Fulmer. Yeah. He's a he's a good guy. Friend of the show. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Welcome. Welcome to our show. <laughs> you know, we're really um, like, you're just kind of an icon in this, in this field for a, for a reason I'm sure you don't like really. Uh, maybe you do like it. I don't know. Tell us, uh, what, what do you think about where you're at right now? Well, let's get a story first, okay, man, because I'm sure a lot of people don't even know his story. I mean, you were, you were, you were sentenced to 55 years in federal prison. Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, is that, is it that, was, it was a mandatory minimum sentence. What? So that was the bare minimum. Well, this was back. When did this happen? In 2002. 2002. So early two thousands here in Salt Lake city. I mean, do you care to share a little bit of that story with us? Yeah. And so the local authorities here had gotten a hard on for me because I, you know, I had come from a music background You know, I had been working with Snoop Dogg and Tupac Shakur's recording group um, and I had landed a major record deal. Um, I produced an entire album for Snoop Dogg um, and signed a bunch of big name artists. I was blowing up pretty quickly. Um, and while at my company, you know, we were working out of California, I was bringing a lot of the acts here to Salt Lake City. Um, I brought Snoop here on a tour. And I, you know, the, the people that investigated me, which was the Salt Lake Metro gang unit, I actually seen them everywhere I was going. I seen them at the shows. It, we had, we had uh, uh, you know, performances here where I brought Snoop and them to do uh, like club shows. And then we did a concert, the Summer Jam, and I seen them everywhere. And so they had, you know, become aware of me working with all these music icons. And so uh, a childhood acquaintance of mine got out, got out of prison after serving five years and he caught another case. You know, he was a violent gang member. Um, you know, he caught a, an armed uh, meth trafficking case that was going to go federal and he was going to be facing like 25 years. So he decided to cooperate and he was approached by the Metro gang unit, um, Officer Jason Mazaron. And he offered to give give up a cartel. He offered to give up murders and other things. And they said, no, we want Weldon Angelos. And even he couldn't understand. My, my, one of my directors reached out to him recently, and he said that's something that he still doesn't get. Why Weldon Angelos? And so, I mean, it's pretty clear why they wanted me. Um, Which so, was because you were dealing with people in the music industry? Exactly. And so, and, and I'm going to tell you how we what we figured out since I've been out. Um, so when they debrief this informant, you know, they said that they wanted me and he said, well, that's easy. And so they said, we want you to purchase uh, cannabis from him. Um, and so, you know, he reached out to me and I was like, okay, cool. Just some weed. Um, and I gave him $300 worth of cannabis on three occasions. 
Um, it was, uh, I think May and June of 2002 spread out between that, you know, those two months. And this time I just signed a major record deal. So my album with Snoop just came out. Um, I was doing really well. So it's not like I was do- making money off the dude. I was just like, okay, here you go. And eventually I stopped talking to him. I was just like, you know what? Stop calling me. Um, and what we ended up finding out later is why they wanted me is because they looked, and this is coming from agents and people that we've interviewed who are part of the law enforcement side, whether a former prosecutor on the federal side or one of the investigators, they said that they looked at me like I brought Ebola into Utah with this weed smoke and rap culture, AKA black people. And so, you know, I was bringing that here and they felt that if they don't, if they let me bring this kind of connection to Salt Lake City, Utah, they will have invited moral corruption. And so they had to basically send a message. Um, and that's why they went after me. And they also, you know, there was another motive is career advancement. If they were able to bring me down and it leads to the takedown of big celebrities, you know, they're going to get promoted. You know, they're, you know, they're going to, and they, they all did get promoted. And when that didn't work out, we weren't definitely not willing to to do that. Uh, we were like, we'll go to trial. Then they tried to get them, everyone to testify against me. So it was really crazy. Um, but after the informant purchased these cannabis cells or these cannabis that we never uh, agreed to meet with them again, you know, because I was doing music. You know, I just got back um, from meeting with Eminem to start working uh, with his group and doing some songs there. Um, we had a song with Pink and, you know, Nas and, you know, unreleased song with Tupac Shakur. So, you know, my career was skyrocketing <clears throat> and I didn't want to deal with this dude anyway. He was really, you know, a scumbag. And I, I did that just kind of because he was like, you know, I just got out of prison. I don't have any money. I need help. You know, my kids, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, here, you know, we're talking $900 total over a course of two months. And so when I wouldn't speak with them more, they were trying to get them immunity through the federal government. And so in order to do that, they had to get federal charges because under the state, those, those cannabis sales would have gotten me probation. And so um, they presented this to the prosecutor, um, a crafty, aggressive prosecutor, took these cannabis cells and he turned it into a 20 count federal indictment. And the way he designed the indictment, I was facing a minimum of 105 years in prison if convicted on all counts. Wow. Yeah, this is what I was reading about your case, that that was that that piece of it, that they took a couple of a couple of weed deals and they turned it into 20 federal charges. I mean, that's, are things a lot different now? Do you think like from their ability to, to create so many charges out of one little deal? We change that. I go to, you know, we go to trial facing 105 years. We win some, we lose some. And at trial, these the prosecutors were literally using hip hop against me as if it was a crime in itself. Um, the prosecutor started the closing argument rapping lyrics from an album I produced with Mac Dre. And so, you know, the Dre lyrics weren't, I didn't write them. I, I produced the music in the album and, and he wrote it and rapped the lyrics. And so they introduced that as evidence, basically saying, this is what this is all about. And in addition, they introduced clothing, hip hop clothing. Snoop Dogg had a clothing line called Eastside, you know, Eastside LBC, just a clothing line. And they introduced that as evidence of gang affiliation. Um, they introduced evidence of, you know, legal gun possession because in the music industry, a lot of, you know, after Tupac was murdered and everything, we started protecting ourselves, bulletproof vests, guns. So when we go, when we bring people places, we vest them up and we're protected. So, um, you know, they use that to make it look like, you know, this was something that it wasn't. 
And so, um, yeah, so hip hop was on trial at this, at my trial was ridiculous. And, um, even the jurors were very concerned about, I interviewed a juror when I got out for my documentary and my book. And he said that he, they felt I was going to get maybe a year if convicted on all counts. And they knew something wasn't right about the trial. Um, but they looked at it like, well, you know, government agents don't lie. There must be some mistake here. Let's just convict them on these ones and acquit him on these other ones. And, you know, he'll probably get a year. And so, you know, after a trial, we beat some of the charges and got it down to 55 years, but 55 years is crazy. And so the judge at trial was terrible with, as far as the evidence, introduction of evidence that would have helped us got denied. Um, we, we tried to suppress evidence that later was ruled to have been constitutionally or uh, unconstitutionally seized, but the judge allowed the government to introduce it. And so, but what shocked us, this conservative judge named Paul Cassell actually decried the punishment and at sentencing, he had done something that no federal judge had ever done. He called on the president to commute the sentence he was about to oppose, impose. So that's something that shocked us. And so he said, this sentence is cruel, unjust, and irrational but under our um, separation of powers, I have no choice but to impose it. And he called on the president to reduce it and he called on Congress to fix it. And so, you know, with those words left us with some hope because the 55 years was mandatory. He had no choice. And, you know, one, some, one thing that's interesting, there was a young prosecutor in that office named Mike Lee. And he was one of the prosecutors that disagreed with the way his colleague was treating me because I, I was prosecuted very heavy handedly for something so small. And so this gentleman named Mike Lee left the U.S. Attorney's Office a few years later, and he decided to run for the Senate. And when he was elected to the Senate, you know, Senator Mike Lee didn't forget about me. He didn't forget about what the judge said. And so he um, basically introduced legislation to fix what happened to me. And so let me fast forward some years. I go to prison to Lompoc USP in California, which is a maximum security penitentiary. And I got a 55-year sentence. So they put me in there with lifers killers like it's what you see on tv i walked in there and it was you know one of the worst prisons in the country how old were you i was 24 24 24 years old i was 22 when the offenses occurred 24 when i entered prison and so you know it was just shocking to see that you know i have to be in this maximum security prison for small amounts of cannabis and you know all my appeals were denied. You know, I, my whole, whole hope was that I'd win an appeal, get a new trial and go home. They were all denied. And so we knew that my only shot would be presidential clemency, which is what the judge recommended. And we knew Bush wasn't likely going to give it to me. And so my sister and I started working on a coalition to get me a clemency on the next president. And when Obama was elected, we were like, this is our shot. And so, you know, we created a coalition of celebrities, um, you know, people that I worked with in the industry and people I never met. Um, and, and a lot of people joined the fold, including Leisha Keys, Bonnie Rayett, Mike Epps, Snoop, a bunch of other people. And then we had political figures like Senator Mike Lee, Rand Paul, um, even Cory Booker got involved and started using my case on the Senate floor as an example of why we need criminal justice reform. And so... You know, my I found an attorney to file a, a commutation petition with the president. Um, Mike Lee wrote a letter to the president specifically asking or demanding that he release me immediately. Um, and uh, later on, the Koch brothers actually picked up my cause, which is a shock to us because, right. you know, we thought, you know, the Kochs were the boogeyman. You know what I mean? And so when they reached out to my family, said they want to help. 
And we're like, okay, this might happen now because, you know, they're really powerful. And so the Koch brothers, you know, they joined the fight to get me out. And by this time, we had five senators. We had my judge who not only was calling on Obama to release me, but he left the bench over his disgust with the punishment that he was forced to impose. And so he stepped down from a lifetime appointment to the bench and became my advocate. And so when we petitioned President Obama, you know, we had a whole group of lawmakers. We also had over 150 former U.S. attorneys, former federal judges, former federal prosecutors, and former U.S. attorneys general, including Janet Reno. Um, and we had this group with the celebrities and the senators, you know, ba- basically pressuring Obama to commute my sentence. And there were, we had some backlash in the DOJ because my case became political. And finally, in 2016, you know, I was finally released, you know, basically through a backdoor deal. And this was what, May 31st, 2016, I got out immediately and I hit the ground running. Um, I began working on criminal justice reform and what's, you know, became the First Step Act. We created this coalition um, with Van Jones, Cokes, and all the celebrities I work with, and even the Trump White House. And so what was crazy is I get invited to go to the White House. I think it was late 2017. And I've never been to the White House except outside. And so I go to the White House and meet, you know, the president, his staff, Jared Kushner. And we're sitting there at a prison reform summit and working on criminal justice reform. It was crazy just coming out of prison and then ending up in the White House. And so, you know, we cultivated a relationship with the White House, um, you know, through our connections with Van Jones and the Kochs. And um, we started lobbying for the First Step Act. Um, Senator Mike Lee and Cory Booker were using my story on the Senate floor as an example of why we need to change the system. And so they they even called uh, one of the uh, provisions the Weldon Fix. And so and my sister even testified before Congress. And so my story became, you know, I became the poster child, basically. And so in December of 2018, or yeah, 2018, we passed the First Step Act. The president signed it into law. And, you know, we were at the White House celebrating at a First Step Act celebration. And I was happy because the statute that gave me 55 years that allowed prosecutors to to hold this much power over someone's life, if they don't accept the plea offer, if they don't become a snitch or whatever, they can hold this over your head and take away your life. Well, we took that from prosecutors. They don't have that ability anymore. And so there will be no more Weldon Angelosis, thankfully. And there were other provisions like the federal drugs, three strikes provision. That's gone. Um, We removed penalties for enhancements that doubled people's prison sentences. But one thing that it didn't fix, it did not fix people or who are imprisoned for purely cannabis cases. And I know I'm going on. I know you guys probably want to say something. No, 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 no. no. We're listening. No, we are listening. I mean, I got a couple of questions, but you just keep going. Okay, so this story is deep. Yeah, it's it's really crazy. It's hard to summarize in a short period of time because there's just so much more to it that we can't get into. But there's a guy I was in prison with named Luke Scarmazzo. And Luke Scarmazzo was serving 22 years in federal prison for operating a legal medical dispensary in Modesto. Him and his partner, uh-huh. Ricardo Montez, they got indicted because Luke made a video that said it was saying, fuck the feds. And, you know, it was a funny video. It was satire. It wasn't serious. And... So the feds got a hold of it and they raided his dispensary because and, of the video. Yeah, because of the video. And they said, who's fucked now? They put it on, they spray paint it on the wall in the dispensary. And so they were offered. Oh, him, my God. Yeah, they were offering him 10 I mean, years. On the one hand, it gives me a little pause about what we're doing here in Utah. But at the same time, that is just crazy. 
Yeah. And so, you know, they really, you know, went hard on these two individuals who were following state law to the T. They weren't breaking state law. They did everything to the T. And this was 2008, I believe, the tail end of the George Bush administration. And so, you know, they were prosecuted. They wanted them to serve a 10-year plea offer, and they wouldn't accept it. They went to trial, end up with 22 years. They charged them under a kingpin statute. And so, you know, the 22 years is a mandatory minimum. And so I was in prison with Luke. And when I found out I was getting out, you know, he looked at me and was like, don't forget about me. And I said, I promise I'm going to come back for you because I think your case is more compelling than mine. And so, you know, I wrote his clemency petition and I we I got his co-defendant out and his petition was denied. So President Obama granted Ricardo's but denied Luke's. Wow. And it was because the Obama administration kept the pardon power within the hands of the prosecutor. So if the prosecutor didn't sign off on it, he wasn't, they weren't granting them. And Ricardo wasn't the one that made the video. He wasn't the activist. He wasn't the loud mouth. He was just a guy that went along with everything. So they let him out. He's free now because of the petition that I had uh, written. And so now we're, we're trying to get Luke out and the first step act didn't help Luke. So I decided I'm going to launch an organization that deals with, people who are in prison for cannabis and we're going to put them, make them the the sole focus of this mission called mission green. And so we basically are uniting the entertainment industry with those in the cannabis industry who can help fund this initiative. And I can use my political contacts in DC to fight for the release. And so I established a report with Jared Kushner's office and I, hand delivered a, li- a list this or uh, a letter this February, February 23rd, we went to the white house and I delivered this letter asking the president to start releasing these folks. And it was signed by um, former governor, Gary Johnson. I had NBA hall of famer, Kevin Garnett and some movie stars and political figures. And so, you know, my mission now is to get people out of prison who are in the federal system for cannabis offenses. Specifically for, and this kind of is my question was um, from before to go back. Why not parole? What about parole is different in the federal system than like that, that you weren't ever going to be eligible for parole. Yeah. There's no parole in the federal system. They got rid of parole in 1984. Yeah. So that's, I think, something that the listeners need to understand is there's no like state crimes parole. You know, you get in, you get into jail, you have 55 years, you're going to get out. (laughs) 55 years. The federal system there, that's not an option. Yeah. And the state system, they have, you know, a sentencing scheme that's basically you get like a zero to five or a one to 15. And then the parole commission will look at your sentence and say, okay, you got zero to five. You can get as much as zero months or zero days or up to five years. And so there's an option whether or not to even send you to prison. In the federal system, they have no discretion um, and there's no parole commission. You you get out and you still have to do probation in the federal system. In the state system, if you get 15 years, when you're 15 years up, you're free. You don't have any parole. But if you get out earlier, you do your parole until your time's up. See, in the federal system, they want you to do all your time and get out and be on sort of like a parole, which is really ridiculous. And so there's there's been movements to try to restore parole. It just doesn't get much traction. Um, I know Lindsey Graham uh, a few months ago mentioned it when he had a hearing about bringing parole back. And I think that would solve a lot of the problems with um, with with the current federal system. What do you think? So back to Mission Green, that's primarily focused on a federal on federal prisoners who are in for cannabis-related crimes, is that to limit it because you can't handle taking care of like all the state, the different state laws, the different state crimes, because it's kind of one unified movement nationwide? Is that 
Is that why, that's, or is there well, some it's part different? of it? Is be, and also because the federal system is the most draconian. And so, if you're in the federal system, if the state goes legal that you're in, there's no relief. You, you're still a criminal. And if it's state case and their state goes legal, they provide expungement. They provide a Senate relief from prison sentences. And so, in the federal system, you're never going to get relief unless the president of the United States commutes your sentence or Congress do nothing. Congress uh, does something, which is you know. Rare, They rarely act on something like this. And so what we can do is we can identify compelling cases like Luke's. And, and we're talking about, we're not talking about cartel. We're talking about individuals that were either low level or they were following state law or in a state where it was legal, but prosecuted nonetheless. I know. Or today your state is now legal and your conduct is no longer criminal. That's like the low hanging fruit that we're trying to to take care of. And so our, our goal is if we can convince the president to commute some of these sentences like Luke's, it will send a message to Congress like you need to do something about this because we can't commute our way out of this problem. There are thousands of people in prison for cannabis. Are there a lot of people that are in four reasons, similar reasons? I mean, 55 years, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred bucks worth of pot. Yeah, they are. I mean, my my case was an anomaly just because the way I was charged. Yeah, okay. So they took that they really went after me crazy. Like you can't find a case where someone got my kind of time for a small sale. Like okay. That. So um, most people, if they get a lot of time, it's because it's conspiracy and conspiracy. If you're a member of the conspiracy and you only sell maybe a thousand dollars worth, you're also responsible for everyone else's conduct in the conspiracy. And so that's how people get long sentences, you know, that's purely cannabis cases. Or it's like Luke's where he gets charged under a kingpin statue, even though he's operating under state law. And what a lot of people don't understand, a lot of consumers, which we're trying to raise awareness on this, is that they don't know that people can still go to prison for cannabis, that people are still in prison for cannabis. And so one thing that we have done since the Mission Mission Green Initiative is that we launched a cannabis brand called Reform Cannabis with two E's. I put reefer and reform together. And so it's reform. And, you know, we've launched in California and what we're doing is we're taking proceeds from the sales of that and put it on the commissary accounts of people who are in there for cannabis, because those individuals like Luke and whose horror stories move the needle in favor of reform and helps, you know, spark ballot initiatives across the country. A lot of these stories were used as reasons why we need to legalize they should be benefiting from the legal industry. If they and their stories and their suffering enabled others to make fortunes off of it, they should be benefiting now. And and so reform is is pledging to to put money on the commissary accounts on a monthly basis for the life of the brand. And these are for prisoners in California. No, these are federal prisoners. Fe- so federal, it's all over the country. All, all yeah. over. All yeah. over. So the federal system has prisons scattered all over the country. And so, you know, reforms only in California. We're looking to bring it elsewhere, including Utah. And, you know, we're trying to make it a national brand. And this brand is in partnership with one of the biggest packaging companies in the country called Kush Supply Co. And so they have, they're providing packaging at near cost and on credit so we can actually, you know, fulfill large orders and try to grow nationally. I'm trying to understand this. I mean, how long have you been out of prison? Uh, four years and a month. I mean, you seem like you, you, you're pretty well adjusted. I mean, I, I had a buddy who spent two years in prison. Right. I remember he got out and he had a hard time. I mean, was it 13 years, man? Was that hard to adjust? Like, how did you go into like all of a sudden start going to the White House and you start dealing with all these political figures? I would have wanted to kind of hide back. And well, it it kind of masked the problems I was going through. It was a distraction getting out. And and it was like adrenaline. So when I first got out, you know, I didn't tell anyone because it was only a matter of time before the news would find out. Because the way I got out, it was news to me. I knew I was getting out. I didn't know when. 
And when they told me to roll up, I got out immediately and I didn't tell anyone. I told my sister, don't tell anyone. I need a few days to adjust, go get some clothes, you know, get some sun. And so, and finally it leaked and my contact at the Washington Post said, I have to run the story. So they ran it. And then once they ran that, I, my life's just been a roller coaster because, you know, news is at my house every day for like weeks and just everyone having me fly around the country and speak. And just because of, you know, my unique situation, you know, I was given a platform and people like you have to use it for good. Otherwise your suffering was for, in vain. It was for nothing. And so I agree. And so rather than getting out being bitter and just trying to, you know, maybe get back in the music or something that I had to do something positive with what was given to me. You know, I, the coalition that got me out was very diverse and broad. We had people on the far left, Bonnie Ray, Alicia Keys, Mike right. Lee, Koch yeah. brothers. And so, you know, with that, you know, you, we, we also use that coalition to help pass legislation. And so, um, I had to do something good with it. And so I had opportunity to make this documentary and, you know, and a book and a potential movie deal after the documentary comes out. And so, you know, that's going to continue, um, you know, raising awareness about the injustices of our system. What's the talk about the documentary? What's what's that? When's it going to be out? How can we watch so it? So we don't know when. It's a feature film, so it's um you know it's a ninety minute feature film, and we're in discussions with HBO right now about you know either releasing it as a feature doc or turn it into a docu series. Um, and NBA Hall of Famer Kevin Garnett is taking the lead. He's the executive producer on it, um, and Mark Wahlberg's production company who had a hand in it as well. Um, and we got everyone in the documentary from Snoop Dogg to T.I. to President Trump to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, um, you know, a lot of different people in there. Um, I, we, they let us bring cameras in the White House. So we were able to film my documentary in there. And, you know, we just been around the country filming. And a lot of it is just telling the story of my time in the music industry and, you know, my trial and and all the, um, you know, things we I went through while I was in prison. So it's a really powerful film to check that out oh yeah i'm absolutely yeah. i mean i can't wait it should be out i'm in just fall. in uh, i mean in i'm in awe at the system how the system can hurt somebody like this in such a bad way really and take their life away or or essentially threaten well and it's not threatened it is i mean they they really did they really told you this is it 55 years from now you'll be getting out of prison I mean, there's a lot of work to be done to get you out early, to, to make it 13 years, which is horrible. But at the same time, the system we have, and I really, um, I want to get involved in this movement and try to help people, especially here, uh, because I think, you know, Chris and I have, we're just at the very beginning of a process in Utah about educating people about cannabis and how not dangerous it is, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like, we have, we have a local platform to do that on in a small way and getting involved, I think is really important for people because like you say, there's people right now, you could do this in Utah and obey the state law, but there are people in federal prison for doing the same thing essentially, right? Yeah. Well, so to be clear, the federal government can prosecute anyone at any time in any state they can walk into dispensary right here in Utah and indict everybody in that building, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Now, now there are some protections. So uh, let me retake that back because yeah, yeah. there's no recreational dispensaries here. So Congress, since 2014, has introduced a rider into Congress that protects medical dispensaries in the United States from DOJ using funds to prosecute them. They have done it nonetheless in some situations. 
Um, but any recreational dispensary and any cultivation, they can literally go in there and indict everyone. They can walk into one of the biggest chains, any MedMen. They can indict the CEO of MedMen if they wanted to, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. So why don't they? Probably public pressure. They don't want to look. They, they'll, they will do it if they find a reason. Like they're subpoenaing Weed Maps right now, trying to get information on all these different companies. They're looking for anyone to find that they're doing any kind of black market stuff or doing anything outside, you know, the the the, the guidelines of like the old coal memos, and they're going to go after them. Like they did Luke. Um, you know, they went after Luke and they let other ones stay. There's other, there was a ton of medical, not a ton, but there was a, a number of medical dispensaries in California at the time. Luke was prosecuted. But only he was prosecuted. And so it shows that they can target anyone they want. Just like me, there were tons of people involved in cannabis in Utah. I was in music. You know, I was on my way to, I had a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, how many people from Salt Lake City, Utah get a chance to work with Snoop and, and go work with Eminem and do all these big deals and, you know, sign major recording artists? You know, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And they definitely didn't like that. Like they, they hated the fact that I had this opportunity. You could tell during the trial, during every phase, they did not like that. Well, in Utah was a different place 18 years ago. Yeah, too. it definitely I mean, was. I mean, look at it, with the fact that we have dispensaries now, the fact that there's medical marijuana, medical cannabis here in Utah. I mean, what are your thoughts even on that? I mean, it's come a long ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was definitely pushing for it. Um, and I, when I was in prison, I seen Colorado and, uh, you know, Washington and Oregon and then all these different states legalize. And we were like, what the fuck? Like we're in prison. I'm looking <laughs> no at kidding. Luke and I'm like, yeah. I know you feel some way cause you were legal. And it's like, you know, I still feel some way just because, you know, the federal government's not doing, even though Obama and them said, we're not going to be prosecuting them. They still did. Um, and, but still just the fact that some people were making millions from doing the same thing I was doing was disgusting. And then, you know, when I got out, when I seen the ballot initiative was actually take picking up, you know, I started advocating too, like me and Sim Gill and, um, Shireen, who was running for Congress, did some panels and, you know, was really pushing for it because I wanted Utah to make that step and, and get us closer to recreation, recreational. What do you think about medical versus recreation? Like what's your goal or do you have any in um, in the movement to to move cannabis towards more legalization? Yeah, I think everyone should have access to, to cannabis. To me, it's more of like it should be like an OTC type. Man, I don't think it should be prescription required, although, you know, I, I see why they're doing it. But I think that everyone should just like you have access to a beer. You want to drink a beer? You should have access to to cannabis. And Amen, I think yeah. home grow is a big issue, too, that we want to see if there's any ever recreational ballot that yeah. comes to Utah. Yeah, I think home, home grow. grow. Even if it's limited to a couple plants grow. or two. I know a lot of big companies are against it. Like MedMen, they wanted us to work with them on the advocacy side. But at the same time, they're over here behind the scenes pushing New York to to get rid of the home grow. And it's like, you know, we, we don't we don't support that. And so, you know, if someone wants to grow a couple of plants in their home, they should be allowed to. Absolutely. Sure. I, and I, I get it from a financial side. I'm in the I'm in the industry now, so I know. And but I don't care. I, I don't want to take away. I don't want to lobby against someone else's right to have their own cannabis. You know, because for the majority, even if with home grow, people most people are still going to dispensaries. They oh, don't want to take care. They don't want to do all that. So the few that that will grow, we should let them do that. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, this is like home gardening. I mean, how many people grow their own tomatoes in the summer? Yeah. It's just not that. Yeah, it's, it's, we so, still. Uh, yeah, most we people still, just go, go to the still go to the grocery store. Yeah, and buy you go a to nice the grocery store. But exactly. Be, so. Hey, it'd be nice to go to the farmers market. <laughs> Could you imagine going down to Pioneer <laughs> right, Park to, over here and right? And there's like two or three uh, small cannabis. small cannabis farmers. 
who have uh, their wares. So you're you're involved quite a bit. Like you, you talk about going to the White House, meeting with the president, meeting with these people, right? I mean, do you have any? Obviously, this is just a crystal ball, but I feel like we're on this cusp of full legalization, right? Like federal. I mean, I felt this way for a while though. So to be fair. What, what, what are your thoughts on like Trump with legalization or, or any of this? I mean, or would you rather not get into that? I don't no, know. I'm we can get curious, into it. I'm like, care. what um, your thoughts are on yeah, that? Yeah, I'm bipartisan. No, nobody talks so, about it. Nobody... So I work with both sides. Like I don't, yeah. you know, I don't, I have to be bipartisan because yeah. I, I work, I work for incarcerated people. Sure. And so if you're incarcerated and there's a president, I have to work with that president, yeah. whether I like him or not or her. Um, and so. You know, while we've heard this president talk about supporting legalization, he hasn't come out and said he supports it, but he said he'll sign a bill if it arrives to his desk. Um, the problem is, yes, yeah. well, he was referring to the States Act. And okay. so the problem with the president is, though, he has people in his inner circle pushing him in different directions. You know, Jared Kushner, who's been really good on this, is pushing him one way and, and, and other people are pushing them in a direction. Then they have the law and order conservatives and, and the Ann Coulter gr- crowd that's pushing them in this direction. So he flip flops. He's just all over the place. So you don't know what you're going to get. And, and, and same with Joe Biden, like he hasn't committed to legalization and, and, and what we support as, as mission green, we have endorsed the more act. And so see, my problem is I want federal legalization, but I know the federal government always overregulates. And we don't want more regulation. It's already regulated enough in the states. So we, I would rather have the federal government deschedule it and get out of the cannabis business altogether and let the states deal with it. And that's what the MORE Act does. Maybe it was on a podcast I was listening to that you did, but somebody was saying that if it went to a Schedule 2, it's actually a bad thing. Was that on a podcast that, that I was listening to with you maybe? Because yeah, they were talking about we, decriminalization. We, if it went to a Schedule 2, just decriminalize, yeah. that would actually be worse than So we, we want it removed from the criminal code altogether. Okay. Um, so we want it like, completely out of the criminal code. Um, so the federal government, and then leaves it up to the states. Okay. But under the MORE Act, states are incentivized to legalize, to provide expungements, and to provide opportunity for disenfranchised people, marginalized communities to get in the industry. And so while they're not going to be regulating it, because can you imagine California's 50% tax also including you know more taxes? It would just destroy the industry. And so um, definitely don't want to see the federal government. I mean, I'd rather have them fully legalize it than keep it the way it is, but I would rather just see it descheduled completely. Yeah. Cause it's not like beer is a schedule, right? Like it's no, like no a I mean, this is cigarette. such a complicated issue. Yeah, Right now, too, right? cannabis is up there with the worst drugs. Yeah, 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 I mean, cannabis so. and heroin are the same as, as according to like the drugs. It's ridiculous. Right? It's schedule worse one. than cocaine according to the government. You can't prescribe it from a medical standpoint. You can't prescribe, you know, cocaine, you can't prescribe, marijuana, right? That's, they're, they're the same. If they schedule it as schedule two, I mean, that's, that is a load of work for a lot of different industries. The healthcare industry has to figure out how to put it in the hospitals. They have to study it. The FDA has to approve it. There's going to be insurance fights on who covers it. Does your insurance cover your medicine or not? I I don't know that, I don't know the ins and outs of like exactly how that would work. But that seems like a a lot of work making so, it like an ov- over the counter medication. Frankly, I think that you're right. The you can go down and buy a beer. You have access. There's got to be some pathway to get to that. To get to where the states regulate it, but they regulate it in a way that that works so that everybody has access. Yeah. Now, what is the you were talking? Okay, so I made some notes here. You were talking about reefer, your, the clothing. What's the Weldon project? The you, no, you, the Reform is a cannabis brand. The Reform is a cannabis brand. And then you mentioned Mission Green. 
But you didn't oh, yeah, mention the Weldon green. project. So the Weldon project is our nonprofit. Okay. And so the Mission Green is an initiative under it. So it's oh, basically okay. it's a temporary initiative because it's only working to achieve one goal. And when that goal is achieved, it's over. And so the Weldon Project will continue working on criminal justice reform. Like, for instance, the Weldon Project got or is working to free former Bad Boy Records artist Loon, who was, you know, a member of P. Diddy's and record label. And he was a successful uh, Grammy award winning musician. And so the Mission Green wouldn't take that case because it's not cannabis. And so that's the difference. And so the Mission Green was, in, was brought about for that limited scope of, you know, free. And so once all the cannabis prisoners are free, you know, Mission Green's done. And so we're working to take ourselves out of business, basically. I got you. Oh, that's a pretty cool uh, way to look at it. Yeah. And so a lot of nonprofits form and they don't like and they have a, a, a conflict because if they form an organization and they're working to, say, get rid of mandatory minimums and they're all getting paid one hundred and fifty, hundred sixty thousand dollars a year. If they got rid of mandatory minimums completely, they're out of a job. And so they work to, to do this minimalist approach, small you know, small steps because they want to keep their job. And so there's a conflict there. So Mission Green, we made it clear as we want to put ourselves out of business so we're not needed. And most of Mission Green are volunteers anyway. It's like, you know, so we're not trying to incentivize people to want to keep us around. We want to be gone. So we want to make, we don't want to see anyone in prison for cannabis. So what's your day to day like? What What's your life like now? Four years later, you've been out. You're, I mean, I'm sure you're busy, but what's, what's the day to day like for Weldon? Just advocating. I'm writing either writing legal briefs for um, people in prison for cannabis, or I'm you know coming up with uh, products, SKUs, um, you know taking calls, advocating, you know networking. Wow. Yeah, reaching out to other people to to try to bring them aboard. Like we're doing a partnership with Kush Supply Co. It's a major partnership. Like they're they're going to be bringing about a hundred or five hundred thousand dollars worth of potential donations to Mission Green via this packaging program, where everyone gets these Mission Green packaging for their brand, and it shows they support the cause. And so, you know, that's down the line, but that's something we're working on. And so I'm just trying to get this cannabis brand, you know, taking it nationwide. You know, I want to hit Michigan because they got really good social equity laws there or provisions. And, you know, these people in prison need money. The female prisoners, they don't even get provided tampons. And so we we read a story where one woman had to choose between calling her kids on Christmas or buying tampons. She decided to call her family and had to use toilet paper. And that's disgusting. So, you know, if they're not going to provide it, we will. Wow. Oh, uh, that's, that's. Did you? How did you learn how to do all this stuff, man? Were you just like reading law wing, like crazy? Just, in oh prison yeah, well, what, I mean, I'm, I just wing it. But you know, I learned. Well, I I got myself out of prison, yeah. and so I was in there, and I was you know studying the law, I was learning everything, and I seen all the mistakes my attorneys made, and you know I just started fighting my way out, and my sister was basically the face of my you know campaign, and then I you know did everything from prison. You know, yeah. I had a few people there, and we just sat around at a table and we strategized, and it worked. You know, I reached out to senators myself, but through my sister. And so, and it just got a lot of people to join the coalition. So, Sounds like you had a pretty supportive family. I mean, you, you mentioned well, your I, sister. I, well, I, we come from a very, very, very poor resourceless background, yeah. which is why I ended up getting in hip hop. My mom left when I was four. My dad was disabled. And so he was on welfare our whole lives. Uh, and he was old. I think he was... He was like 54 when he had me. And so when I was like 11 or 12, he was a senior citizen and disabled. And so we lived in housing projects our whole life. Um, and so, you know, it was just me, my brother and my sister. And so when I went to prison, pretty much all I had was my sister. My dad was too old to do anything. 
Um, and so, yeah, it was pretty tough. And a few people from the music industry kept in touch, like my best friend from Tupac's group, the outlaws, um, he stayed in contact the whole time, but for the most part it was rough. I could imagine. Yeah. Cause the feds gobbled up all my resources because all my stuff I bought with my music money, they came and seized it before trial to keep me from mounting an effective defense. Cause we had all kinds of p- investigators we hired. We had expert witnesses and everything, but like, you know, a, a month or two before trial, they came and seized even legal stuff because they held on to it. Now I can't use that to pay lawyers. I can't sell off my cars. And they did it on purpose just so we would had one, we had, I had one attorney, like they had a whole team of people and it was just me and my attorney because all the people we hired didn't show up because we couldn't pay him. Wow. Well, so what's your relationship like with cannabis now? As far as he loves it. I mean, do you, do you, do you like the plant? Do you feel like it? I mean, I'm, I, I'm selling it again. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, I'm selling it legally. So the, the irony of this is that I always wanted to be in the industry because just for the fact that they put me away, they took away my life for selling it and now I can sell it in their face legally. And so, um, and actually I don't actually touch the plant because I'm an IP company. But the fact is that I'm still in the industry and it just feels good to be able to be in it. And I, I mean, I've always looked at cannabis as being harmless. I mean, it's not, it's not for everyone. Sure. You know, some people you don't like, it, you don't like it, but it's definitely not something that is harmful. It's not, it's definitely way less harmful than alcohol. You know, you can see the difference. People drink, they get drunk, they beat up people, they kill people. They, you know, a lot of stuff bad happens. You don't see people smoking weed and then, you know, going out and saying, oh, I'm going to go beat this you know what I mean? Whatever. It's totally different. So, um, you know, if, if you replaced alcohol drinking with cannabis completely, you would see a drop in crime and accidents all across the country. So, so, so where are you selling it out of California? Or? Yeah. Okay. So, so just, we're out, we're in California right now yeah. and we're working to bring my brand to Utah. So basically I'm not selling anything. You know, I created the brand the IP and basically another a licensed company will, will create it, you know, we'll provide the labels, the packaging and they, you know, give us basically a licensing fee. Wow. Very cool. So hopefully that'll come to some of our Utah. Yeah, absolutely. We're working on it right now. So we have someone here that's willing to bring it here. So hopefully that happens. Absolutely. We want to, we want to know more about that as, as you get closer. Well, I don't want to hold Weldon up all night here. I don't know. Do you? I, no, I mean, any other questions you want to ask him while we have him here? I mean, that are, that are like, I mean, it's hard to get everything. I mean, I know you kind of skim the surface with everything and it's kind of hard to get into everything. Uh, we'll have to bring you back through the podcast. Yeah. But- I mean, I'd love, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to keep up with this story. I remember this story cause I'm from here. You know, I mean, I remember this trial. I remember the story in 2004, but I can't, I can't really recall what I felt, how I felt about it at the time. It was a different world back then. Yeah. Man. It was it was a totally different world. I mean, I think we still had private club for members here in Utah back then. <laughs> back then. Oh. <laughs> if you right. remember those, right? Like, yeah. Now, how can people? How can our listeners get involved, man? Can they go? Like, let's say they want to get involved, even with the industry in general, right? Like, let's say they don't know how to start. Maybe they want to get involved with some of your stuff. Maybe they want to come donate even to some of your to some of your things. How can people do that? Yeah, people can go to theweldonproject.org. You can donate directly, or you can. Just a volunteer, 
Um, we're definitely looking for volunteers because we do a lot of different programs in different states and, and on a national level. And we definitely need the help and resources. You know, the, the, the unique thing about Mission Green is that we are founded by people who have been affected by the system. Um, there's a number of organizations out there that are out of touch. They're run by the elite and they don't really know the system like we do. We've had direct contact with the system and so we know how to fix it. And so, you know, um, my friend said it best, the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And so um, Mission Green was founded by people directly impacted. And so um, we're different than other organizations. And because of our proximity to the decision makers, we're, we're better suited to get this stuff done because we can, you know, we can go to the president, we can go to governors, lawmakers and get stuff done. So very cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I'll have so, yeah, and we just uh, announced yesterday um, Stormy Simon just became our executive director. Okay. Oh, wow. High time CEO, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, really Stormy. cool. Yeah, she's, isn't she running for some like Utah representative too or something like that? Reason. Something crazy? Yeah. yeah to bring well, I really we appreciate you people. coming. This has been uh, really like exciting to see where like where Utah's come from with a very specific perspective although um, it's a federal perspective to keep us all, you know, n- not making YouTube videos that say, fuck the feds, you know, and uh, keep ourselves just <laughs> don't, don't write yeah. that on your walls. Yeah, Don't go write that on your walls. Okay. <laughs> no, the feds did that to him when oh. they raided him. They said, who's fucked now? Oh my God. So what he did was, which he, it was stupid to do that when you're selling cannabis. He just felt they couldn't do it, but I would never do that. If I know they can arrest me, I'm going to be nice as heck. And say, you guys did a great job. So he made the video and he had like, he was showing off all the money because they had made like $6 million in like 18 months. And wow. so that, you know, it was a dumb mistake, but it shouldn't have cost him 22 years. If they would have came and took it from and seized him, you know, that would have been enough because he'd be like, damn, that was dumb. Um, but 22 years of someone's life, he's been down 12 and he's watched his daughter from a little kid. She's grown up 18 now and it's just sad. So that's horrible. And yeah. one, they let the other one out. So we were able to secure the release of his co-defendant, but you left Luke in prison. That's not, that's violates equal justice principles to, in my opinion. And so, cause they're equally, they did the same thing, you know? So, well, well then I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're out. I'm glad you're working for, for everybody. Um, who's been affected? I really appreciate that. How can yeah. people get a hold of you, Tim? Let's wrap this show well, absolutely. up. Absolutely, uh, utahmarijuana.org. Um, you can you can read the the podcast. We're all caught up. Uh, episode seventeen was released and transcribed on on the uh, website. You can definitely call our office uh, or call for any help you need with your card or your letter. Uh, we're going to put together a a big push to convert letters to cards and help everybody out. 801-851-5554. Uh, we also opened up a clinic space in Kaysville now. So we have two places to come see us, Salt Lake and Kaysville. And announcing uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be in Ogden as well. And you're going to eventually be in Utah County. Too. Yeah, we'll be so in Utah County. That deal fell through a little bit. So we're, we're delayed in Utah County, but that's coming. Very cool. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's wild and crazy out here. There's a lot of people to help. And people can get a hold of you through utahmarijuana.org yeah, as well. Yeah, that's the best uh, way. I want to urge people to reach out to us. There was a few comments that we weren't bringing certain people on the podcast. And I want to tell people, hey, we're bringing people on as quick and as possible. Absolutely. You know, we're, with only doing one episode a week, it's hard to get to everybody super fast. Mm-hmm. But uh, reach out to Tim or myself. And you can find me at IamSaltLake.com. That's my other podcast I do with my wife, I Am Salt Lake uh, Podcast. I'm trying to remember the last episode I, I released my mind 
Uh, I don't even remember. I mean, you got to be up in the four, almost four fifty. Four forty-two, I think, was that. Actually, August is my eight-year anniversary, Tim. Oh, so we wow. better celebrate. Eight well, years let's of podcasting, man. So holy. Anyway, cow. let's wrap this show up. Let's. Anything else you want to add, Weldon? Yeah. Um, for those that want to support, they can also find us on Instagram. Okay. Um, at Project Mission Green. Um, they can follow us there and, and stay up to date on everything we're doing. What's your favorite way to consume cannabis? This is a fun question I ask you. Ask Blunts. People. Blunts. Nice, nice, nice. That's that's actually one of my favorite ways too. So, well, cool, man. I like it. Let's wrap this show up. Leave a review in iTunes. Make sure to subscribe and you guys have a great week. Yep. Stay safe out there.